Hey fam, I have been wanting to share this episode of Strange and Unexplained with the TCO fam for a while now. I helped research and write this episode with the Strange and Unexplained host, Daisy Egan. This was our Pride episode this year, you guys, and it tells two stories I've been fascinated with for literally decades. They're two stories I've talked about a bit on TCO, so I wanted to share this episode here so you could get the full story. As the title says, these two stories are about two really important people who were hiding in plain sight. Amazingly, they lived about 100 years apart in time, but only a few blocks apart in geography, which that fact continues to blow my mind. One was a prominent member of society, the other a member of a marginalized group, and they both had a secret they desperately wanted to keep. That's all I'll say for now. I hope you love this episode. We worked really hard on it and we're really proud of it. And if you want more stories like these, you can find Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever had a secret? Have you ever known something important? something other people really want to know and just, like, kept it to yourself? Now imagine that secret was about yourself. And if anyone found out about it, it would completely change your life, maybe for the worse. It might even get you killed. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor. I'm also a proud queer person who has spent years hiding my queerness in various ways in order to survive. And here, at 41, I'm fortunate enough to live in a time and a place in which who I am attracted to and how I present myself to the world doesn't spell absolute catastrophe for my life and my career. Though it certainly doesn't help. And I know that my privileges were earned on the backs of countless queer people before me who laid down their own safety so that I can have my own. Today, I'm celebrating Pride Month on Strange and Unexplained with two stories about hidden identities that are totally unrelated, except for their queerness. The first story I'm going to tell you centers around a person known as the Stonewall Lesbian, who was potentially a pivotal figure at a pivotal moment in history, but whose identity was never known, even though she was seen by hundreds of people. To understand her significance, we need to talk a little about the famed Stonewall Riots of 1969. The Stonewall Riots, as you probably know, are generally credited as being the beginning of the gay rights movement, which isn't really accurate. The gay rights movement had been quietly gaining momentum for years by the late 1960s. So the riots were more of a flashpoint and a paradigm shift in the way LGBTQIA people saw themselves and their ability to fight the oppression they'd been experiencing for centuries. And look, I've said it before, I'm no historian, so I'm not going to give you a history lesson about Stonewall. For that, I highly recommend Eric Marcus's Making Gay History podcast or any of the other excellent queer history podcasts. But there are a few things you need to know for context to understand this first story. The Stonewall Riots are named after the Stonewall Bar where the riots took place. Back in the day in New York City, before there was a gay bar on every corner from the Brooklyn Bridge to the Upper West Side, 
There were only a handful of bars where LGBTQIA plus people could gather for drinks. Believe it or not, serving alcohol in bars to, quote, known homosexuals had just become legal in 1967, two years before the Stonewall riots. That's another insane and fascinating story. If you want to learn about the four men who literally fought for and won the right for gays to get hammered in public, I strongly suggest you Google NYC Sip In 1966. That shit is bananas, and those guys are heroes. Anyway, most of the gay bars at the time were owned by the mafia. It's not like the mafia was trying to do something nice for gay people. It was more like, uh, I don't want them in my house, but I'll take their money. No, it was just a business opportunity. The mafia knew they could buy basically condemned buildings, put almost no money into fixing them up, and then open them as gay bars. They'd charge an entry fee to get in, water down the drinks, and pay off the cops to look the other way. Most of the gay bars were dumps, and the Stonewall was no exception. There was no fire exit, no running water behind the bar to wash glasses, and the toilets in the bathroom were constantly overflowing. But it had a jukebox, and it was one of the few places gay people could go and dance with each other without being arrested or beat up. So they put up with the inconveniences. What other choice did they have? The other thing to know about these mafia-run gay bars is that even though they had these payoff deals in place with the local precincts, police raided these bars all the time, like at least once a month. For the cops and the mob bosses, it was just part of doing business. However, for the people caught in the middle of all of this, the raids were a nightmare. Anyone without ID, or really anyone the cops felt like messing with, was likely to get arrested. As was anyone not dressed in, and I quote, at least three items of clothing as prescribed to their gender by nature, meaning anyone in drag was getting hauled into a paddy wagon and thrown in jail for the night. This law, by the way, apparently dates back to the 1800s and was originally put in place to keep rural farmers from dressing up to scare off tax collectors, which is just, like, what? Anyway, during the raids, cops were known to literally shove their hands down people's pants to do a genital check, and if they didn't like what they found, off you went to jail. And the worst part? The names of those arrested in these raids were often published in the paper the next day for all to read, including their families, friends, co-workers, and bosses who were then free to fire them without any fear of repercussions whatsoever. So... The raid at Stonewall that sparked the riots started at 1.20 a.m. when two plainclothes police officers walked into the bar and shouted, We're taking the place! I really like to imagine their moment before. Like these two cops walking up to the bar, holding hands, you know, so they blend in. And they're like, I'm nervous, Bob. Don't be nervous, Bob. How's my hair, Bob? Your hair looks great, Bob. We got this. We'll just go in there and take up our rightful space as straight white men. Check some IDs, grab some genitals, and call it a night. Okay, Bob. Maybe we should kiss first. You know, to throw off any suspicion. Great idea, Bob. Right from the start, this raid didn't go the way they usually do. There was an estimated 205 people in the bar that night. It was late. Most of them were drunk. And frankly, they just weren't in the fucking mood. Men in drag were refusing the gender checks. Others were refusing to show their IDs. There were only six cops total trying to control the crowd, and when they radioed to request backup, the backup never came. 
No one really knows why backup never came. Most shocking of all, as the cops started allowing people to leave the bar, they didn't run off into the night as they usually had, grateful to have evaded arrest. No, that night they stuck around outside the bar waiting for their friends and watching the show each next release person made as they strutted or danced their way out of the bar. Before we go any further, it's important to note that one of the most strange and unexplained things about the Stonewall riots is that to this day, there are only a handful of known photographs documenting it and no film or Super 8 footage. An activist named Craig Rodwell, another name you should know, the guy literally invented the annual celebration we now call Pride, he actually ran home and grabbed his camera to document the events. But when he went to get the film developed, none of the pictures turned out. The film had somehow gotten destroyed. Think about that. The one camera that was documenting this pivotal moment in history somehow crapped out. But also, the riots took place over five nights, and no one else thought to go grab a camera? The newspapers? Locals in the neighborhood? Even Craig Rodwell? Like, did he not have another camera? Or more rolls of film? This is insane. The Stonewall Riots were one of the most important cultural events of the 20th century, and we have almost no documentary evidence of it. Maddening as that is, though, the fact is actually vital to this story. You see, outside of a very small group of activists, Stonewall wasn't immediately recognized for its cultural significance, and it would be over a decade before historians started recording accounts of the riots in any meaningful way from the people who were actually there. Obviously, no one questions that the riots happened or the general timeline of the events that night, but the lack of documentation has made it more difficult to confirm more specific things like the story of the Stonewall lesbian. Here's the story of the Stonewall lesbian. Many people who were at the riot that night tell the story that as people were leaving the bar and the crowd was amassing outside, a woman in handcuffs was being roughly led by a cop to the waiting police wagon. She was described by witnesses as, quote, a typical New York City butch. The story goes that she was actually led through the crowd several times because she kept escaping from the cops, and each time the cops recaptured her, they got even more rough with her until finally one of the cops hit her over the head with his baton. This is the moment that most witnesses say the energy of the crowd changed from excited to angry. It is said that the woman, still handcuffed and now bleeding from the head, looked at the crowd and yelled, why don't you do something, before being thrown into the paddy wagon. This was the spark many witnesses say that started the riots as the crowd began to fight back against the cops. Over the years, as the story of the Stonewall riots became well-known, so did the story of the Stonewall lesbian. And without a doubt, one of the most intriguing parts of the story of the Stonewall lesbian was that nobody ever came forward to claim to be her. To understand how really strange that is, you have to understand that by, say, the 1990s, the Stonewall riots had become so famous, books had been written and movies had been made about them, that every gay person of a certain age trying to claim their place in history would say they had been there. So it seemed particularly unusual that a person who had played such an important role 
wouldn't come forward and claim their glory. And who knows, maybe the woman had died, maybe she didn't like the spotlight and preferred to live in anonymity, or maybe she had never existed at all. Craig Rodwell, the guy whose pictures of the night didn't turn out, watched the riots from a stoop right next to the entrance to the Stonewall Bar, so it seems like he would have had a front row seat to the beating of this woman. But he is on the record with historian Martin Duberman, who wrote the first published book about Stonewall, saying that he did not remember seeing a woman being beaten by a cop near the entrance to the bar. So, frustratingly, it seemed that if the story of the Stonewall lesbian was true, her identity would likely be forever lost to history. But then, in 2008, a woman named Stormy de la Veille came forward and took credit for being the woman who was clubbed by the cops that night and that it was, in fact, her beating that started the rebellion. Stormy de la Veille is, without a doubt, one of the most fascinating and downright fucking awesome figures in LGBTQIA plus history. And I'd be remiss not to tell you a little bit about her before judging if she was, in fact, the famed Stonewall lesbian. Stormy was biracial. Her black mother had been her white father's servant, which I'm not even going to comment on. Her childhood was rough. She was picked on for both coming from a family with money and for, as she described it, quote, being a black kid with a white face. But it was her father who taught her to own her identity. He told her that she had to stop running from who she was or she'd be running for the rest of her life. Those words had a profound effect on Stormy, who realized she was a lesbian around her 18th birthday. Stormy was a natural performer and toured the country as a singer with a big band before becoming the MC for the world-famous Jewel Box Review. The Jewel Box Review was basically the world's first drag show, which toured the country with the subtitle, 25 men and one girl. Stormy, emceeing the show in drag as a man, was the one girl. And first of all, she was a grown woman. Like, you can put the word men on the poster, but not the word woman? Also, she was a full-blown butch lesbian. You don't call a butch lesbian girl. As Stormy tells it, it was after a performance of the Jewel Box Review at the Apollo Theater in Harlem on June 28, 1969, that she decided to head down to the Stonewall. She said she arrived as the crowd began to gather outside, which would have been after 1.30 a.m. She stood at the back of the crowd and watched the events unfold until she recognized a gay male friend of hers on the ground near the entrance to the bar, having been shoved by a cop. She ran up to help her friend get up and was herself shoved by a cop who told her to move. In an interview with Curve magazine in 2008, she described what happens next. The cop said, move along, fat. I think he thought I was a boy. When I refused, he raised his nightstick and clubbed me in the face. It was then the crowd surged and started attacking the cops with anything they could find. In another interview, Stormy claims that in response to being hit by the cop, she clocked him right in the face. She said, I walked away with an eye bleeding, but he was on the ground. Out. In other interviews she gave, Stormy outright denied being there. Look, there is no question that Stormy took part in the riot that night. Her presence there had been confirmed by dozens of witnesses over the years. But was she the Stonewall lesbian? 
Here's the thing to know about Stormy. She was a major figure in the gay community in New York City in the years following Stonewall, right up until her death in 2014. She was a member of the Stonewall Veterans Association, even serving as its vice president from 1998 to 2000. In the 80s and 90s, she worked as a bouncer at popular lesbian bars. Like, the gay community, gay history, and gay liberation were her life. There's no way she hadn't heard the legend of the Stonewall lesbian. So why not come forward and identify herself? Why deny it? When asked by the reporter for Curve magazine, Stormy simply said it was nobody else's business. And this is one of the things that makes this story so unusual. There would have had to have been occasions when Stormy was in the room when her friends and contemporaries were talking about the Stonewall lesbian. I mean, the identity of that person was the great unsolved mystery of the Stonewall riots, and there Stormy must have sat knowing the answer to the mystery was her, hiding right in plain sight. And look, Stormy's story doesn't differ in important ways from the eyewitness accounts. In her own telling, Stormy doesn't say she was in handcuffs when she was hit, and she doesn't say she was thrown into the paddy wagon and arrested that night, but still, we know she was there. She fits the description of the woman people saw get clubbed by the cop. She says she was clubbed by the cop. And nobody else has ever come forward to say it was them. For me, that's case closed. Stormy Delavier was the Stonewall lesbian. Well into her 80s, Stormy lived at the famed Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street in Manhattan. Long since retired from her bouncer days, she still, as an octogenarian, was known to patrol the local lesbian bars with a gun on her hip. A gun on her hip to make sure nobody was messing with her babies, as she referred to the bar patrons. And she was a fixture at the local Chelsea bar called East of Eighth, where she would sit and chat with strangers who had no idea they were passing time with a revolutionary and an icon. In the end, this biracial, gender queer, masculine presenting lesbian who lived well before any of those identities were even talked about, let alone part of the lexicon, and who played a pivotal role in one of the most important events in the fight for LGBTQIA rights, ended up dying in relative obscurity, alone in a nursing home in Brooklyn, which makes me want to drink an entire bottle of wine and go to sleep for days. She was from New Orleans. It seems to me that if anyone deserved a jazz funeral, it was Stormy DeLaVeye. The next story I'm going to tell you is about someone who lived and died long before Stormy DeLaVeye and the riot at Stonewall. Though, interestingly, the place where this person lived and died was just a stone's throw from the Stonewall bar. In fact, if you took a left out of the Stonewall and walked a block and a half to 6th Avenue, went left and walked another block and a half, you'd be standing in front of the small row house that was his home around the turn of the 20th century. It's sort of amazing that the building, now over 120 years old, still stands. The street-level space now houses a noodle shop that I have definitely eaten in, and the upper two floors have been converted into the small postage-stamp-sized New York City apartments you read about. It's an unassuming structure. You'd walk right past it and never imagine its historic significance or the true stop-the-presses scandal that erupted there upon the death of its owner, Murray Hall, in 1901. 
Murray Hall was likely born in Govan, Scotland, which I've never even heard of, in 1841. He emigrated to New York in 1870 and quickly climbed his way up through the ranks of New York City's democratic politics. Without boring you to death, I'll just tell you that this guy was baller in today's terms. He was a fixture of Tammany Hall, which was a corrupt political organization that played a major role in controlling New York City and New York State politics. In an article published about him in the New York Times after his death, he's described as a prominent politician, though he doesn't seem to have ever held political office. And there are numerous references to his friendships with judges and senators. So, you know, this guy was connected. Oh, and here's something for you internet sleuths to chew on. In that same article in the New York Times after Hall's death, there's mention of a wife in his early days in New York. This wife complained that Hall was way too flirty with other women, and then, apparently, according to the article, she was just gone. The Times piece reads, The woman suddenly disappeared. Whither she went, when or how, no one knows. The husband never spoke of her after her disappearance, and no one cared enough to make inquiries. Like, what the actual fuck? What happened to her, people? Can we get body moving from Don't Fuck With Cats on this? Billy Jensen? Someone? So, at this point, in addition to being a womanizer and potential murderer, it probably won't surprise you that, by most accounts, Murray was also cantankerous, belligerent, and generally unpleasant to be around. Especially when he drank, which he did a lot. There's a story that's mentioned in just about every article you read about him in which he gets drunk and into a fist fight with a cop in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Apparently, he gave the cop a black eye. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, Daisy, why are you telling us about a grumpy old, possibly murderous straight dude in the Pride episode? Also, what's so strange and unexplained about a grumpy old, possibly murderous straight dude? To that, I say, I really wish you trusted me by now. Have I ever let you down? Don't answer that. But to answer your question, let me tell you how Murray Hall died. In early January 1901, Murray was very sick. He'd actually been sick for several years, but had done his best to hide his sickness from his friends and allies, a feat I imagine wasn't super hard to pull off. Like, Murray and his guy pals don't strike me as the kind of crew that would sit around and talk about their feelings, you know? Anyway, by winter 1901, he was very, very sick. He'd amassed an actual library of medical textbooks in an effort to treat himself because he wasn't the kind of guy who went to the doctor. He did, however, know a doctor. Dr. William C. Gallagher lived around the corner from Murray on West 12th Street and was summoned by him when it became clear to Murray that the end was near. Murray disrobed for the doctor's examination and revealed a pair of breasts. Turns out, Murray had been assigned female at birth. Plot twist, right? Murray had very advanced breast cancer in his left breast. The cancer, in fact, was later described as having eaten its way almost to his heart, which is just, like, an unnecessarily gross way to say it, okay? Murray Hall died just a few days later on January 16, 1901, at the age of, we think, 61. We don't know a lot 
about Murray's life before his time in New York. Most of what we do know comes from Haverlock Ellis, an early 20th century English physician and writer who was one of the first to write about homosexuality and transgender psychology. Ellis apparently did a bit of research on Hall after his death and was able to determine that Murray was born in Scotland with the given name of Mary Anderson and that he was... Orphaned very young. And on the deathbed of his only brother, Hall put on his brother's clothes and began working as a man. Ellis continues that it was when Hall's gender was discovered in Scotland that he fled to the U.S., Ellis doesn't cite any sources for this, and I should mention that he was also a supporter of eugenics, so let's just go ahead and take everything he says with a grain of salt. But even if we don't know when and where Murray began presenting as a man, the why is obvious. I mean, I assume most people prefer to present as the gender they identify with, and it certainly seems like Murray Hall identified as a man. Sure, some people cross-dress for, like, work purposes or whatever. Like, when you live in a body that's heavily regulated, it can be advantageous to pretend to have a body that's less regulated. Like, if you lived in the 1800s when women weren't allowed to vote or work in a whole host of professions or go to certain schools or own property or inherit wealth if they had a male child or just generally make day-to-day decisions they felt were best for themselves... Like, if those were your circumstances, I could see you being like, fuck this shit and cutting your hair and putting on a pair of pants. But to live your entire life as a gender other than the one you were assigned at birth, especially back then, that requires a level of commitment I can only assume would be born from your core identity, you know? Anyway, back in New York City in the days following Murray's death, everyone who had known him in life was losing their shit. Dr. Gallagher had kept Murray's secret until he passed, but after that, it was out of his hands. Within three days of his death, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, Murray Hull fooled many shrewd men. How many years she masqueraded in male attire and married two women. That part in all caps, by the way was a prominent Tammany politician and always voted. Senator Martin astonished. Reading through the article, you can see just how truly shocked people were to find out. And angry. It's sort of hilarious to read that one of the things that made Murray's male contemporaries most irate was the simple fact that they had been fooled. That some woman had pulled the wool over their eyes. One guy, Murray's friend, Senator Bernard F. Martin, said he wouldn't have believed the story at all were it not for the impeccable reputation of Dr. Gallagher. The other thing these Renaissance men hated was the fact that Murray had voted in political elections. Women wouldn't get the right to vote for almost another two decades, and these guys sure did not think they were ready. As the headline in the article mentioned, Murray had married a second time in New York after that first wife mysteriously disappeared and no one cared enough to look into what happened to her. His second wife's name was either Cecilia, Celia, or Sella, depending on where you look. And the two had an adopted daughter named Imelda, nicknamed Minnie. Murray and Cecilia were married for 16 years before Cecilia died, just a few years before he did. So this begs the question... 
Did Cecilia know? She had to have, right? How can you be married to someone for 16 years and not know what's in their underwear? I'm going to go with the version of the story that Cecilia absolutely knew what was going on in her husband's pants and was perfectly fine with it, and in fact preferred it to the other varieties of genital. The mechanics otherwise are too exhausting to think about. The lack of sex, or at least the lack of sex with the light on, and the hiding? I mean, you can literally Zillow their address and see the space they were living in, which is wild. But there's just no way two people could live in a space that small and get away with anything. It's just too much. I think his wife absolutely knew. The person who bore the brunt of this whole situation is Murray's adopted daughter, Minnie. We don't really know anything about how this adoption came to be, other than that it's referred to as, quote, unofficial in stories published at the time. What is known is that she loved her father very much and was his only living relative at the time of his death. So, amid her own utter grief and confusion, she was left to settle his estate by herself while also being hounded by the press. A newspaper reporter who grilled Minnie after her father's death had the fucking audacity to ask her why she wasn't saying she in reference to her father, and she said, I'll never say she. This is pretty revolutionary for the time, if you ask me. Like, using a person's preferred pronouns in 1901? Get it, Minnie. Oh, dear listener, I do wish that were the end of the story, but I do have one more thing to tell you. And it's kind of a lot. So here's the part where if you have a drink, you should take a nice big sip or gulp. If you don't drink, maybe like do the serenity prayer or something. Here we go. Murray Hall, who was well-connected in New York City's political circles, who was a respected member of New York society and a successful businessman, was buried in women's clothing in an unmarked grave in Queens. He was buried in women's clothing in an unmarked grave. In Queens. The New York Times ran an article with the headline, Mary Hall's funeral. The madwoman was dressed for burial in women's clothes. And you can bet it did not continue. That's really fucked up. Oh, and another thing. Murray's burial attire was left up to Minnie. Now, look, I don't want to disparage the dead, except the ones who deserve it, obviously. And I can't even imagine the kind of emotional stress she was under. But Minnie, girl, you let them bury your dad in women's clothing? In an unmarked grave? Like, what the fuck, girl? I don't know. If that had been my father, I would have absconded with his body faster than you can say, would he want his suit to be a three-piece, and buried him myself. Ironically, my father wears dresses frequently and will most likely request to be cremated in one. So, like, if someone came and was like, hey, we're taking out his earrings, cutting his hair, removing his manicure, and putting him in a suit, you better believe I'd pull a Stormy Delave, eh? And start a riot. Hey, 
fam. Thanks for checking out this episode of Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. If you're looking for more stories like these, stories about unsolved murders, strange disappearances, UFOs, Bigfoot, Amelia Earhart, and more, find and follow Strange and Unexplained wherever you get your podcasts. 